Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Welcome to the mini break. Your daily podcast for the biggest storylines, results, and controversies from the tennis world. Today is Monday, August 8th. On today's show, we recap our three Sunday championship matches on the ATP and WTA tours, putting a final bow on our coverage of everything that happened last week in both San Jose and Washington, D.C., It was a fun day of tennis on Sunday. Certainly our WTA matches deliver the goods to three set finals. Ultimately, it was a pair of Russians earning their first titles on the season. Now, of course, I talked all last week on why regardless of what happened on Sunday, Daria Kasatkina has been a top 10 player this season. She's number three in the points race. She found herself on the precipice of re-entering the top 10. She does just that after she earns a three-set victory over Shelby Rogers. How was Kasatkina able to do it? It was the culmination and epitomization, dare I say, of everything we've seen from her over these past 20 months. Of course, the physicality that she brings to the table match in, match out, it's elite. And yes, I'll say it again, it's elite physicality from Kasatkina. But even beyond that, her ability to manufacture a few more free points for herself, her ability to snap that forehand and turn it into a weapon even more so than a placeholder, all of those skills were on display in her three-set victory over Shelby Rogers. She wore the American down. I'll explain how she managed to do that throughout the course of today's show. Run through the numbers one last time for Kasakina as we look for where she stands right now in this 2022 season race. Of course, we'll put a final bow on Shelby Rogers. I'll explain why you should not be selling your stock in her following a loss in that San Jose final. But of course, uh, as fun as the Kasakina rogers matchup was, as physical as as that matchup became, you had perhaps the inverse of that going on in Washington, D.C., plus one tennis, the name of the game. And honestly, both. Actually, I think plus one tennis was a more significant factor of the women's final than it was for the men. I mean, Ludmilla Samsonova, Kaya Kanepi, two players who can get after the plus one forehand, they did so throughout the course of the first two sets and really throughout the course of their three-set final. Ultimately, it's Ludmilla Samsonova earning her second WTA title of her career. She wins a three-set thriller at the City Open. And I talked a lot in our last podcast about why I think Samsonova, should she ever win a Grand Slam, will become an immediate inductee into Serena Williams' Power Tennis Country Club. But to see that plus one game manifest itself in the final, to see her play so freely yet so powerfully with you know the stakes being a title on the line, 
very, very encouraging for Samsonova. And what is a significant fall for her? I want to explain what her past 12 months have looked like to explain why these next three months remain that much more important to her as we, dare I say, and I know we got a long way to go, but dare I say, close out this 2022 season. You can finally maybe start to see the finish line. But again, want to put a final bow on Samsonova. We can talk a little bit of Kanepi if you all would like as well. And then we'll get into the men's side where Nick Kyrgios did what Nick Kyrgios does. Another victory for the Aussie. Kyrgios earns his first title since winning the City Open back in 2019. Straight set victory over Yoshihito Nishioka. Not to give the entire ball game away, but Kyrgios earned breaks of Nishioka in the opening games of each set. And he cruised from there. And that's the key word, cruised. I want to explain why, again, there's a comfort level to the performances of Nick Kyrgios match in, match out. Top five contender in New York. Certainly we'll see him tested in Canada, in Cincinnati over the course of the next two weeks. But if he passes those tests, the answer is an unequivocal yes. And we can get into the numbers once more, I suppose, to explain why. But heck of a week for Kyrgios. Heck of a week for Nishioka. We'll put a final bow on all of it on today's show. Of course, the reason we're able to do that day in, day out here at Crack Rackets is because of the support we get from all of you listeners, because of the support we get from our Patreon family, and of course, because of the support we get from our friends at Tennis Point. We are so excited to be taking part in Tennis Point's college showcase event happening this weekend in Cincinnati. Going to be a ton of cop college tennis teams competing on the grounds of the Western and Southern Open. We talk about it all of time. There needs to be synergy in the branding, in the selling of our sport, because the level of play across levels is always phenomenal, whether it's at the collegiate level in Kalamazoo in San Diego for the girls and boys 16s, 18s national championships this week. There's a lot of good tennis happening around the globe at any given moment, and we're so excited to be able to broadcast some of it. Again, if you are planning on going to the Western and Southern Open, open. Come a day early. Come to qualifying. The ticket's a little bit cheaper, and again, you're going to get to watch some extraordinary tennis. You're going to get to hear some more of my corny humor. We're so excited to be taking part in that college showcase this Saturday in Cincinnati. Shout out to our friends at Tennis Point for including us, and shout out to them for supporting tennis players everywhere by providing the best equipment at the lowest prices. You all know the deal. Tennis-point.com. The promo code is CR15. You use it, you'll get 15% off all sale items. Free two-day shipping on all orders exceeding $75. Best of all, a free can of Wilson Extra Duty Tennis Balls, tennis-point symbol, not the spelling, tennis-point.com. The promo code is CR15. With that said, let's get into it. And I know I promise this from time to time. I do imagine this will actually be a shorter episode of the mini break. Now, if you're looking for extensive thoughts from the weekend, we recorded a couple of mini break episodes this weekend, breaking down all the ATP action, WTA action, talking about the Mikhail Emers of the world, the you know Paula Badosas of the world, the other players who played a prominent role in this weekend's action. We also talked about the Los Cabos final, which happened on Saturday, not Sunday, uh, here this weekend. Already talked about all of those things. You can find them both wherever you listen to your mini break podcast or on our website, CrackedRackets.com. Again, only three matches for us to discuss on this show, but we're going to start with the action in San Jose. I'm all in on Daria Kasakina. I'm pushing my chips into the center. She's a top 10 player this season. Now, is she a tier one player moving forward? Do I think Daria Kasakina is guaranteed to win a Grand Slam over the next decade, you know, till until 2030 is how I look like to look at the framework right now? No, 
I don't think she's a tier two, uh, tier one player. She's no lower than tier three. And this version of Daria Kasatkina can absolutely be the sort of gatekeeper player that you have to beat if you expect to be a top 10 player right now on the WTA Tour because we saw it all week long, whether it was the explosive weapons of a Rabakina, a Sabalenka, a Shelby Rogers, whether it was the physicality and the longevity is the wrong word, and the persistence is perhaps the best word, a discipline of a player like Apollo Bedosa, who I think we all would agree is as disciplined. She would be a top-tier disciplined player on the WTA Tour. Kasakina's physicality wore all of them down, and against Shelby Rogers, it was interesting because Kasakina went up in early break 2-1, only to see that break immediately evaporate for 2-all. And credit to Shelby Rogers, who came out of the gate swinging. She said, I see your loopy ball. I see your defensive skills. I don't care. I'm going big cross. I'm going big line. I'm setting up my patterns. I'm taking my swings. I'm going to try and step forward and hit the swinging volley as well. Just do whatever I can, I being Shelby Rogers in this moment, to disrupt the rhythm of Kasakina and play on my terms. It was just so difficult for Shelby Rogers, the same way it was so difficult for Sabalenka, the same way it was so difficult for Rabakina, to sustain the level of shot making, sustain the power tennis necessary to wear down a Daria Kasakina. Because even with you, when you hit your freebies, even when you hit your winners, and in the first set, I think Shelby Rogers was plus eight in terms of winners uh, against Daria Kasakina. You're not going to do it on the first ball. She's tracking that first one down, and she's probably going to hit that first one back to you service line or deeper, so it's not an easy second put-away shot, and you just you got to keep swinging, and eventually the errors are going to pile up, and eventually they did for Shelby Rogers, who also, to her credit, you know, goes down a second break, I believe 4-3 in that second set, and you know, ultimately, Kasakian is serving for the set up 5-4. Shelby locked in. Shelby said, you know what? I'm going to stop swinging for a moment. I'm going to grind with you. I'm going to bet that you're not going to be able to hurt me. Or if you do, you're going to generate more unforced errors if I go into a defensive mode than I am if I just keep swinging freely and, you know, giving you freebies, which is what Daria Kasakina wants more than anything else. And just, you know, Shelby's willingness to just throw loopy topspin not lobs, but just defensive neutralizing shots off the backhand wing. I thought Shelby was scooting in and out of the outer thirds of the court movement-wise about as well as I've seen Shelby move, you know, since August 2020, since she's become this new player on hard courts. And in the first set, she was willing to match the physicality of Kasakina, willing to wait the extra five shots necessary until Kasakina would throw a ball, you know, short within the service line or would throw in an attackable slice that Shelby Rogers could jump on top of. Or there were times when that loopy ball just jumped right into Shelby Rogers' strike zone. And credit to her, it may have been the 13th ball in the rally, but she would pull the trigger down the line. Shelby played elite tennis from 4-5 down in that first set till she won the first set 7-6, 7-2 in the breaker. And boy, did Shelby serve well in that first set. She made 67% of her first serves and just again, uh, was in control, was in command against Kasakina down the home stretch of the first set. She was able in that tiebreaker to, you know, 
step inside the baseline and punish the Daria Kasakina first or second serve, which really is just a kick serve, a sitter that sits up and is very attackable for a returner if you're daring enough to attack it. And I mean, you look for Daria Kasakina, as good as she's been this year, she's still 48th amongst top 50 players in hold percentage, holding just 62.7% of the time this season. I mean, look, Shelby Rogers swung freely. She played aggressively. She played physical in the first set. What is like an hour 15 long first set? And then she just couldn't sustain that. And even when making first serves, you could tell there was just a little less juice in her legs in sets two and three when hitting that first serve. And, you know, as such, you know, it just became a little bit easier for Kasakina to, to, instead of having to hit the return six feet behind the baseline, she was able to hit it a little bit closer to the baseline. She continued to be electric in the outer thirds of the court and just, you know, had Shelby Rogers moving further and further out towards the alley before, you know, when Shelby would try to pull the line, uh, pull the trigger down the line, if Shelby didn't hit a winner, if Kasakina was able to track that ball down, Kasakina's defensive on the run forehand cross court ball, Shelby Rogers just by sets two and three didn't have the juice left in her legs to track that ball down. And look, Shelby had her opportunities after dropping the first set 6-1, which you could tell by the end. She was like, all right, I got to save up whatever gas I have for the third set because that's the sort of challenge Kasakina presents. You know, Shelby had some break chances or had some opportunities, I should say, in the early service games of Daria Kasakina. Didn't have any break chances in that third set, but, you know, had some 30-all opportunities or was able to get to a deuce. But, you know, Kasakina was able to weather the storm. And then just again, had Shelby spread around the court so impressively, worked the outer third so well, just doesn't hit the ball to the same spot Two, more than two shots in a row. She'll go inside out, inside out, inside in forehand. She'll go cross court, cross court, slice backhand, or just, again, her on-the-run forehand. She hits it on the rope. It reminds me a lot of Roberto Bautista Goot on the men's side um, in terms of just an equivalent, how dangerous she is hitting that on-the-run cross court forehand. Look, there's a reason for Daria Kasakina. You look now overall, she's 32-14 and 14 on the season. She's winning 70% of her matches. She's third in the points race right now. You want to get into the advanced analytics. She's seventh in overall ELO rating. She's 10th in hardcourt specific ELO rating. She's third in, in yearly ELO rating. Every ranking metric, of course, in the live rankings at the week here, start of the week in Toronto with points coming off the resume. She's up to number eight, a career high in the live rankings at 25 years old. Checks out. And I know she was a top 10 earlier in her career, and then she began to struggle a little bit. But again, the physicality that she's able to replicate, match in, match out, her floor as a player is just higher because her forehand speed, there's a little bit more sting now behind that plus one forehand. And just physically, again, she's just a nightmare. Match in, match out, two match up against you. Look for Kasakina now. Again, overall on the year, she's played, what, 15 total events. She's made the quarterfinals at seven of them, semifinals in five of them. Now earns that first title on the year. A reminder, she's 70 and 33. She's won 68% of her matches since the start of last season. She's 57 and 18 against players outside the top 20, 13 and 15 against top 20 players, 6 and 12 against the top Top 10 is not too shabby, particularly considering what four of those losses came against Iga this season, and everyone is losing to Iga this season. Credit to Daria Kasakina. 
easy to, you know, have that early peak in your career and try to chase it for the rest of your career and not be able, you know, or let falling down the ranking break you mentally. She did not let it break her mentally. She is a completely different player and, you know, represents all that is so great about the sport. Now, again, on Shelby Rogers, just a quick reminder, I don't think Shelby played poorly. And for Shelby to fight back in the way she did at the end of that first set in in is an indicum is in is indicating there we go that's the word leave it in west off um indicates just the fight the tenacity how well her when she does serve her best and she made 69 percent of her first serves in that first set was able to win you know 61 percent of her first serve points 53 percent of her second serve points you know in particular down the home stretch of set number one she was winning free points with that first serve she was doing so well just swinging freely and playing on her terms and she is capable of playing that level of power tennis there's no doubt about it and again the stat I want to point to all of you as we look towards these hardcore events Shelby's 39 and 25 she's won 60 percent of her matches on hard courts since the start of August 2020 of course during that stretch of time she made a U.S. Open quarterfinal she's made an Australian Open and U.S. Open round of 16s and Indian Wells quarterfinal in there as well. Now, obviously, the final run uh, for her in San Jose during this stretch of time. She's 12-8 and against top 20 players. She's 4-4 and against top 10 players. When she serves well, she can beat absolutely anyone. And so, again, if, if you're into the gambling side of this game, if Shelby Rogers is against a seed, and she's the underdog, and you can get plus money on her on a hard court ever, if she's serving well, you take it, because that's the sort of threat she can be, and she proved that again in San Jose. She may have lost to Kasaki in three sets, but again, straight set wins over Andrescu, Sakari, Anisimova, Kudermatova, the 28-year-old, 29-year-old, excuse me, up to a new career high, number 30 in the rankings. I mean, yeah, you get to set your schedule. That's where you want to be. But that was your women's action in San Jose. Again, a fun week of action, fun kickoff to our North American hard court summer. Of course, the action also carried on in Washington, D.C., and we talked about it all week long. So great to have the women's event back in D.C. It's the sort of facility, sort of city that just deserves to have as much tennis at its event as possible. And Look, was it a conventional final in number six seed Kaya Kanepi, who did not have to face a seed on her way to the final, taking on unseeded Ludmilla Samsonova? No, you maybe would have wanted a Pagula as a Ranka matchup if your tournament president and tournament owner, Mark Ein, to sell as many seats as possible. But man, when Ludmilla Samsonova is on, she looks as good as any player on the WTA tour right now. And I do a brief what's the term I'm looking for? A brief tangent. There we go. As I want to offer an update on where things stand right now in the top 10, 15, 20, 25 clubs. A stats update for all of you nerds out there. Of course, those clubs referring to tennis abstract stats leaderboard. You can look at hold percentage, break percentage on the top 20 uh, in the 2022 season, which players in the top 50 are holding serve most frequently, are getting broken most frequently. I like to make clubs of the players who rank top 10, tw- 15, 20, 25 in each category. Right now on the WTA Tour, there are only seven players who rank top 25 in both hold and break percentage. And one of them is Marketa Vondrusova. Another one is Marie Buzkova, who is the 
men's equivalent of Ilya Ivashka or Benjamin Bonziz, who have kind of popped up on there via a bunch of challenger success or 250-level success. There's no doubt Buzkova has been exceptional this season on court, and her Wimbledon run is a testament to that success. But she's the star of the lower-caliber events right now, and she's been beaten up on players, as she should. That's why she's in the club. You know, Von Drusova has just been good but very injured this season. But seven total players in the top 25 club. That's the lowest number of players we've had since we started doing these top 25 club exercises. So it's been, what, about two years since I first referenced it? That's crazy to say out loud. But it's been about two years. Usually you have about 10 to 12 players who rank top 25 in both hold and break percentage. That there are only seven right now, and I just want to list the seven for you because, again, let's contextualize all of them. The two members who rank top 10 in both hold and break percentage, Iga Svantec, makes sense, and Simona Halep, which we've had that argument enough, so I'm not going to relitigate it here. She's been pretty solid. In her wins, she's looked exceptional. In big matches, she struggled, but, you know, again, a lot of winning for Simona Halep this year, so... Top 10 is probably a bit extreme, not too many qualms. Just went through the Vandruzova, Buzkova case, who are your two top 15 in both hold and break percentage players. Buzkova's just been beaten up on everyone she's playing in qualifying or in these 250-level events, just won the title in Prague. Uh, top 20, Jabour, makes sense. Wimbledon finalist, has been really good all year long. Really only two bad losses, French Open first round, and I think it was Indian Wells first round, where her only really two inexcusable losses, and both of them were in three sets. She should be a top 20 player. The fact is, though, there's just not a lot of Jabours on the list, right? Like Paula Bedosa, not on the list. Jessica Pagula, not on the list. Daria Kasakina, 48th in hold percentage. She's not on the list. You know, top 25 club, you have Barbara Krachikova. She was really good at the start of the year, which is helping her stats now. And Annette Contebe, who is, again, like Jabour, you would imagine, is in this top 25 list. She's a top 10 player in the world, has been pretty solid whenever we've seen her on court. And yet, like, Sviantek, Halep, Jabour, Contebe. Really only four players that make sense that they're in the top 25 club right now. We talk about the depth on the WTA Tour. There are a lot of good players right now. Again, Conteve is really good. Paula Bedosa is really good. Coco Goff is really good. Belinda Bencic is really good. Layla Fernandez, when healthy, is really good. Who are the great players right now on the WTA Tour? And when we have our tiers discussion, we'll ponder that, I suppose, some more uh, in, in more broad context. But that's what the advanced analytics are telling me, is that there haven't been that many elite tennis players this year. Yeah, Iga is the elite of the elite. The numbers say so. The eye test says so. Again, she belongs in the top 10 club. But like Jabour top 20 club, she's had a very good season. That's your category, you know, the definition of your tier two player. Conteve on the outer edges of tier two, but she belongs in tier two right now. Outside of that, not a ton to work with. And that's why as we turn back to Washington, D.C., you keep an eye on someone like Ludmilla Samsonova, who when she plays her best, she's just playing on her terms. And I know I mentioned this last week, but Samsonova fourth amongst top 50 players in hold percentage, holding 76.6% of the time. For your reference, that's better than Iga Svantec this year, 3% behind Naomi Osaka, who's number one overall on the season. 
I mean, she faced two break points throughout the course of her final against Kaya Kanepi. Was broken in the first set, down, what was that, 4-5 in the first set. She, you know, three unforced errors. I believe two of them were on plus one forehands. The other was a forehand that sprayed in the rally, and Kanepi connected on a return. Like, that was the difference in set number one because both players were cruising on serve. You look for Samsonova overall in the set. She was 18 of 25. She lost four points, uh, seven points, excuse me, on serve in the set. Four of them came in one game. That means her other four service games, she lost three total points on serve. Kanepi, on the other hand, 20 of 26 for the set on serve. A lot of plus one forehands, you know, a bunch of free points on serve, missed returns, even if they got their racket edge on it and just was, it was serve by tennis at its finest. Obviously, that's why I filibustered here when talking about City Open, because there's not much to say about this match other than to say when Samsonova gets clean look on her forehands, there are times when she's untouchable. And you look for Samsonova, who hit 10 aces overall in the match, won 81% of her first serve points, 35 of 43. She dropped just uh, 18 points on serve in what was it? Let's see. 18 plus 10 is 28. 14 service games. She dropped 18 total points on serve. Again, four of them came in one game. She faced two total break points throughout the course of the match. She was dominant behind that first serve. And when you flash dominance right now, given the lack of elite, elite players, we know what that upside can mean for a player in any given match, in any given event. We just saw Elena Rabakina catch fire behind the serve, behind her plus one forehand, and ride that power tennis to the title in Wimbledon. We just saw Samsonova do it in D.C. as well. Again, she's got to be able to sustain it. We've seen it in flashes. Last year in Berlin on the grass courts when she won her first grass title, and certainly at the end of last season when she was making semifinals in Luxembourg and you know semifinals in Cormayeur as well. Samsonova's play capable of playing some outstanding tennis, and she's 39 and 24 overall since the start of the grass court season. Excuse me, 38 and 23 overall since the start of the grass court season last year. She's won 62% of her matches. If I told you a player who came from outside the top 100 has won 62% of her matches with two titles thrown in the mix as well, you would say she's probably ranked somewhere around the top 40. And right now, Samsonova back up to number 42 in the world with her result, which at 23 years old, she's in strike zone. She's going to get in the strike zone, get into all the big events that she wants to play. That said... Bunch of points for Samsonova to defend down the home stretch. She, you know, again, semifinals in Luxembourg, semifinals in Cormayor. Those are two 250 semifinals for her to defend. She also won a round at the U.S. Open last season. That said, given her ranking, she'll certainly have a plethora of opportunity to defend those points. And I think a lot of people would think third round is probably the expectation for her at the U.S. Open because when she's connecting with that serve, the plus one forehand, the racket speed she can generate, just inside in, inside out. When you give her space, if if there's an opening on the cross-court forehand, she hits the ball with so heavy and so much depth that you're just in trouble as her opponent. And Kanepi, at this point of her career, just not fluid enough in and out of her corners to play any defense against Samsonova, who just kind of you know was a little bit more fluid. I think Samsonova's a pretty good move. Again, she's so aggressive with her footwork. It really does remind me of watching an Andre Rublev match. 
She moves pretty well, although she takes big cuts in the outer third. So when you have her on the run, that's where the errors come. And credit to Kanepi, who went after the first serve, uh, went after the plus one ball and was only broken three times in this match. Kanepi played a really good match and was, you know, again, a deserving champion. Samsonova was just swinging so freely by the end, and she was the fitter of the two players down the home stretch, which again, when you have 23-year-old legs against the oldest player in the top 100 in Kanepi, you should be the fitter player down the home stretch. And again, for Samsonova this week, wins over Mertens, Radakanu, Kanepi, Tomjanovic, a confidence-boosting week when she needed it most. Again, you look for her, she's 15-14 and 14 overall on the year, was 10-14 and 14 coming into the week. Fourth amongst top 50 players in hold percentage. We see the flashes of elite skills. I think she's a good returner as well. It gets a little bit slap-happy and goes a little bit big on that return, but foundationally, yeah, the forehand backswing is big. It's not that big. And I just think it's the mindset she has, the go for the kill. You can't fake that. That's why we made a Serena Williams Power Tennis Country Club. That's why I'm so impressed with her performance this week. But on the flip side, of course, Kai Kanepi, 24-12 and 12 now overall on the season. She makes her highest level final here this week in Washington, D.C. since, what was it? Uh, well, I guess in Australia at the start of last season. But prior to that, she hadn't made a WTA Tour final since Brussels in 2013. So, you know, again, 37, 38 year, uh, 37 years old, excuse me, is Kanepi now, 31 in the world rankings. Not the worst place in the world to be. But, you know, with that said, last but certainly not least, let's talk about Nick Kyrgios, who uh, earns himself his first title since the 2019 season in D.C. and just put on a service clinic all week long. Was not broken all week in D.C. in singles. You know, had over 10 aces in every match he played as well. And against Yoshihito Nishioka, earned opening breaks of serve in both sets one and two to ultimately cruise to what was a straight set 6-4, 6-3 victory for Kyrgios. You look for Nick even without the points added from making the Wimbledon final. And again, Nick Kyrgios made the freaking Wimbledon final. Even without those points, Kyrgios right now 21st in the ATP points rates. He's back up into the top 40 of the ATP rankings, currently sitting at number 33 in the live rankings right now with a first-round match against Sebi Baez to come in Montreal. Curious is 27-7 and seven in singles overall on the year. And again, who are the losses to? I know we've gone through this before, but the losses, Novak Djokovic uh, in the Wimbledon final, Riley Opelka, Houston semifinal, indoors, Sinner, round of 16, Miami, Nadal, Indian Wells quarterfinal, three sets, Medvedev, Australian Open uh, second round, four sets, like Hercot, 7-6 in the third in the Hala semifinals, there's not a bad loss on that resume. Seriously, there's just not. And you look for Nick Kyrgios. Not only is he 27 and 7 in singles, he's 18 and 4 in doubles. Wins the Australian Open men's doubles title and sweeps the doubles and singles titles at the City Open. Just the second guy to do that this season alongside of Andre Rublev. It's been a career year for Nick Kyrgios, who, by the way, at 27 years old, that's what we call the prime of your career. And I know I tweeted this stat out. Nick Kyrgios right now holding 95% of the time this year. 95% of the time. It's second best number I've ever seen 
in a single season on the ATP Tour. Now, he's still got a couple months ago, certainly some big events to play, but it will be fascinating to see if Kyrgios manages to sustain that level of serving because behind that first serve, it just allows him, once he gets that opening break in sets one and two, he's cruising from there. And you look for him against Nishioka. He only faced one break point in the match, 30-40, first set. What does he do? Big serve wide, serve and volley, high backhand volley, and Kyrgios lands it. Short, you know, short in the service box. Nishioka not able to track it down. That high backhand volley, in my opinion, is the most difficult shot to execute in tennis. But, you know, when you're Nick Kyrgios, it's all working for you. The serve and volley, again, down a break point and doesn't fake, uh, face another break point from 3-2 up in the first through the rest of the match. You know, I, I've said this before, and I, I hate repeating myself, which I know I do far too frequently here on these shows, but Kyrgios can grind a little bit. That was most what was most impressive in the beginning of the sets. Didn't matter if it was set one, set number two. You know, he was willing to absorb the first strike of Yoshihito Nishioka. Not necessarily the pace of it, because of course Yoshi doesn't hit the biggest ball, but the placement of that shot. Kyrgios was able to scoot into the outer third on the ad side, and he hits his backhand so well from the corners. I'm certain that the lefty top spin of Nishioka helped. It put that ball right in Kyrgios' strike zone and allows him to bunt through it a little bit more flat because Nishioka is providing all the top spin that he needs. Uh, But then again, he worked the forehand well, spreading the court with that shot, not only playing heavy cross court when the opportunity presented itself, but opening up the court with the down the line, playing into the Nishioka forehand. And certainly, again, the additional uh, ability to just hit his backhand short angle cross court and step into that ball and just play confidently throughout the course of the match. You look for Nick Kyrgios again throughout, against a, a physical opponent in Yoshihito Nishioka, 32 winners, you know, just 12 of them being aces. So 20 winners from the ground against what? 16 unforced errors. He was 9 of 13 at the net with the big one coming against him on the one break point. He is able after, you know, blows a couple of break points in that opening service game. They play to a couple of deuces, but he's able to ultimately get that opening service break. Gets uh, the second service break as well to close out the match and falls on his back because obviously for Nick Kyrgios, 45 and 11 overall in this year. It's the most winning he's done in his career, particularly after the nadirs of last season where he was talking openly about retirement and talking openly about how his love for the sport has dissipated a bit. Uh, it, it's obviously just a little bit more difficult for him to uh, have those opportunities to uh, just make life a little bit easy for himself. And, uh, you know, again, to be ranked as high as he is now to get to be able to set the schedule, rank 33 in the world. You can go play the Masters 1000 events and not worrying about having to get into qualifying or having to get a wild card to get into main draw, which he got a lot of, but now he doesn't have to worry about that. And as he talked about in Wimbledon after as he was making his run, boy, wouldn't it be nice if I didn't have to play top seeds in rounds two, three, four, and the quarterfinals. And guess what? When you're a top 30 player in the world, you don't have to play top seeds until later on in the event. So I mean, dare I say, we have a motivated and focused Nick Kyrgios right now. And I don't know we've ever had him like this since he was maybe 18, 19 years old. And look, when you're holding 95% of the time, one break of serve does the trick. 
and we saw that manifest itself very clearly against Yoshihito Nishioka, who again didn't have the weapons to hurt Kyrgios with either. To watch Kyrgios grind a little bit was impressive. It's just it's fun to see him have that defensive gear. So credit to Nick Kyrgios again. Uh, straight set victory, six four six three, first title since 2019. Again, it would be a top ten player in the points race if you included the Wimbledon points. We do not. He's still in the top 25. Big week for Yoshihito Nishioka as well. We talked plenty about his tennis, but it's just worth noting Nishioka now overall here in the 2022 season, 33-18, and 18, back up all the way to number 54 in the career rank- rankings. His career high is number 48, and, you know, he gets into Montreal now as a special exemption. First-round matchup against Benoit Paire, a very winnable matchup for Nishioka. He wins that match. He's now 51 in the rankings. Uh, very, very, very cool, certainly, if you are Yoshihito Nishioka, so credit to him. Uh, it, you know, again, he's just you're back in the ball game, and now you get to change your schedule. Maybe I'm not playing challengers. Maybe I'm going to Europe to playing those indoor hardcore events to end the season. Nishioka now has made that option available to himself. But with that said, again, that's your championship weekend on the ATP and WTA Tours. And for what it's worth, no current players in the top 10 of both hold and break percentage on the ATP Tour, but the top 15 2025 clubs make much more sense. Djokovic is top 15 in both. He'd be top 10 if he played more matches. Elk Perez, Zverev, 15. I think that makes sense. Medvedev, Sinner, Nadal, RBA, all top 20. And then Fritz Kesmenovic, top 25. Yeah, Nadal would be a little bit higher, but he wasn't that dominant during the clay court season. Now, he's been really, really good this year, of course, and was dominant at the French Open. But I'm talking about all the matches he played in between Indian Wells and the French Open. And that's why he's top 20 and not top 15 or top 10 club. With that said, though, that'll do it for today's mini break podcast. I think we put a bow on everything from San Jose and Washington, D.C. Again, if you're looking for a Los Cabos recap or more thoughts from the weekend, check out the earlier recorded episodes from this weekend on the mini break podcast feed. Of course, starting tomorrow, we'll shift our focus to the Masters 1000 and 1000 level WTA event happening in both Montreal and Toronto, respectively. We'll have Nate Walrith on to preview the two draws, talk about the biggest storylines, offer some predictions for all of you fans as well. Of course, over on the Great Shot Podcast feed, Damian Kust, Jakob Bobro, breaking down another fun week of ATP Challenger action. And John Parsons, Chris Hallior is going to join me this week to talk about the college players having some success right now out on the Pro Tour. All of that available for you this week, wherever you listen to your podcasts or on our website, CrackedRackets.com. Of course, shout out as always to our super producer, Daniel Westoff, for the f- of an editing job he does day in, day out, making all of this content possible. Shout out as well to our friends at Tennis Point. Remember, it's tennis-point.com. The promo code is CR15. But before we really get going, one last time for our super producer, Daniel Westoff, our friends at Tennis Point, and from all of us here at both Crack Rackets and the Tennis Channel Podcast Network, I'm your host, Alex Gruskin. You know what we say. That's the break. We'll talk to you all tomorrow. Thanks, everyone.